You are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Laura, and we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students past and present. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. Today we have our final episode on the series on life balance with painter and drawer Indrila Mukhopadhyay. Intrila Mukhopadhyay. I went to grad school at the University of Chicago in Chicago, Hyde Park, Illinois. And I currently am a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in the biosciences area. How did you become interested in science? Um, were there any early influences for you? So, so my father is a surgeon. Uh, all his friends were doctors. My whole uh, parents' social circles were made out of medical folks uh, in the army. So it was a kind of a sciencey environment in that manner. For what it's worth, they were interested in their children becoming doctors as well. So not science per se, perhaps, uh, but because they wanted their children to join a medical profession, uh, and they too were interested in, in medicine, it kind of pushed us towards um, science-y topics. Uh, and maybe that was our family's aptitude also. That's one big influence. Growing up, everybody around me was either a doctor or wanted to be one. As you were pushed into the science direction, were you excited about it? I never questioned it. It was just normal. Didn't seem conflicting. Uh, it seemed like what everybody was doing, interestingly. Uh, so yeah, maybe not the most exciting answer, but it's just it's just how I grew up in a very sort of sciencey environment. So for instance, if I got sick or if somebody broke a bone, our approach to it now I understand was very different. It was very objective uh, and very uh, data uh, or information driven. Uh, this is what has happened. This is how it will heal. This is how it works. So your approach to kind of day-to-day -day challenges like why a food tastes a certain way or what happens when you get sick or why when you moved around as an army child from like one environment to the other why the vegetation changed. All of those things were viewed by people around me from a very sciencey kind of educational filter. And I think that kind of influenced the way I looked at things also with some curiosity and some assumption that there is an explanation for this thing that is inexplicable. So that was one thing. And then uh, when I was in high school, I had a teacher, a tutor, an after-school tutor, whom a bunch of us would go to just to kind of catch up on what would be considered over here AP level science, math type thing. And this uh, tutor, He's now a professor in IIT Madras and very famous one. But at that time, he was a graduate student in a, in a neighborhood college. And he was just uh, doing this as um, he was good at it. And he had some uh, interest in teaching and it was a source of income for him. And uh, I remember 
he would get carried away and kind of go a little bit beyond what our textbooks required. There was this one time he was trying to explain some concept around chemical structures for semiconductors. And I remember thinking, oh, I understand what he's saying. And I got excited about it. And he asked me some questions and I could explain it. And he was very encouraging and he was very supportive of the fact that I was excited about something and that I had actually correctly understood it. It's a very small incident, but it solidified in my mind that I I got it. I got something that is not just immediately obvious to people who are not interested in this. Um, And that kind of led me to want to uh, take chemistry more seriously. And so I ended up kind of going in that direction. Did you know that you know, after that point in high school where you were um, confident in your understanding of chemistry, that you were going to be doing chemistry or some kind of science when you attended college? So I kind of actively resisted going into engineering and medicine. Instead, I really wanted to go into, I guess for the lack of a better term, pure sciences. Like I wanted to study chemistry for chemistry. My parents got posted to a not so big city at the time when I had to go to university. Uh, And for practical purposes, I ended up going to a very small university close by. And it wasn't really known for its science curriculum. But it kind of worked out in my favor because the organic chemistry professor at that uh, institution was very good. She was a very good teacher. I remember starting off thinking that this is not very impressive. There were hundreds of students in that classroom, but I liked it. I liked organic chemistry best of all. And I remember she was, she was really good at explaining things that have stuck with me for so long, you know, like how in organic chemistry, how you push an arrow around to figure out how, say, a nucleophilic attack happens or an electrophilic attack happens. And she would go over these concepts over and over and over again. And I could tell that everybody around me was just so bored and they didn't care. (laughs) And it was so beautiful what she was doing because it made so much sense. To a lot of other people, it seemed like you needed to know every single reaction separately memorized in order to be good at it. But for a few of us, it was very clear that she was trying to teach us the underlying principles specifically so you didn't have to memorize hundreds of different name reactions that you could understand how those arrows would get pushed. While you were in college, like, like, did you immediately know that you were going to go to grad school because of your interest in chemistry? No, actually, it's, No, it was not. It was not. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was kind of driven by different choices. There was a a very big uh, political event the last year of my college, Mm -hmm. especially in the part of the country that I was in. There was a, a, a massive set of riots around a a religiously motivated uh, event. Uh, A big mosque was attacked 
fact. And there were activists that poured into our city from every part of the country and the city basically got shut down. So I kind of got stuck because our our final year exams did not happen. We didn't get graded or anything. So we couldn't apply to go to the university. We were kind of stuck at home. We didn't know what to do. And it was very frustrating because it, it was just not, it was things beyond our, our control. I had two choices. I could enroll back in, in a college in the city that my parents were now posted in, mm-hmm. or I could just bide my time. And I really wanted to just study more chemistry. And I hadn't fully articulated why it's just something where I felt there would not be much competition because nobody else seemed to like it that much and I liked it so people would just leave me alone to do something I like and you know all the medicine and the engineering these are very competitive things in India I I just wanted to do my thing you know and in peace and have fun and so I was just very felt very stuck and frustrated but there were a lot of people around me who were studying for these competitive exams for medicine and engineering so not knowing what else to do i just started studying with them wait which exams exactly uh so in india the way you get into medical colleges is there is an all india level standardized exam for all the medical colleges and everybody who wants to get into a medical college which is millions of people take that exam once a year and you get ranked and then based on your rank you get matched with medical colleges and you go off to medical college that way and you do this right after high school instead of going to bachelors you go into so so in india you go to medical school right after high school but since it's very competitive and getting into the better colleges is challenging at best people will take these exams over and over again hoping mm-hmm. that this is their year so there are a lot of people who had kind of been through an entire bachelors program at a university just every year taking these exams so the people at my level you know who were taking who were studying for this exam for that year so not having anything better to do i just studied for those exams over and over again because there was nothing else to do i read an advertisement in a newspaper that and i didn't even know this there's a lot less information just easily available just to be in the know was something special so the advertisement in the newspaper was from a technical institute called the Indian Institute of Technology which is a series of engineering institutes at that time there was like five of them i think and now there are maybe eight or nine of them but these are the premier engineering institutes in india but what interested me is that this advertisement was for a competitive exam for a masters course in physics chemistry uh, math and uh, a couple of other topics that were not engineering and up until that point i didn't i hadn't even known that these engineering institute actually had these other uh, programs so i persuaded my parents to let me go over to mumbai to take these exams and so that's how i ended up going into a masters program for chemistry at iit mumbai and i was there for 2 years that is where i had a whole other level of education of all the opportunities available to me this was the most premier engineering institute in india everybody who cleared this exam after high school mm-hmm. these are some of the 
brightest people that the country has to offer. And they're very ambitious. Uh, and knowledge was just all around, you know. Every third person in this milieu was gunning to go to MIT or Harvard or had never even thought about this stuff actively. I knew about some universities in the UK, but I didn't know about all of this other stuff. So within six months, I was all caught up. <laughs> all of these opportunities. And by caught up, I mean um, that there were the special libraries you could go to that specialized in books around programs of these different universities all over. You checked out these books, you went and opened <laughs> to the page where the university and then you could make photocopies of who were staff, you who were professors there and you would study these people. Uh, there was something called email and you could like write to them directly. <laughs> Um, and then you would go have to book time in the cyber room and kind of have like half an hour <laughs> and this platform called Pine that you could write like a little text note to this professor far, far, far away saying, you know, here I am. I would like to apply to your program and so on. Um, and it was very expensive to take all of the appropriate uh, exams, the GREs, the mm -hmm. GREs for the subjects, uh, the test of spoken English, uh, the test of fluency in English. What I relied on was a very uh, nice system that we had in these universities. What we would do is everybody was paying it forward. These institutions had been sending students to the US, Japan, Germany, UK for couple of decades at this point, what you did is you reached out to an alumni whom you had overlapped with and said, would you help me with these exams? Oh, I see. So they would basically pay for you to take the exams and then you would pay it. They would pay us with some money, but mostly what you would do, you would try and raise the money from friends and family to take the exam. But then when time came to apply, almost every university had like at least a small application fee, $20, $25. If you do the math, that's like thousands of rupees, right? And who in their right mind just applies to one place? If you're going to take this big effort to take all these exams, you can apply to at least a handful of places. And, and so what we would do is we, you know, we spent hours putting all these packages together. We would write to the universities and we would ask for waivers to say, you know, I cannot spend the money to report my scores to you, but should you accept me, then I will spend the money. Here is a photocopy for now. We'd make all these packages based on whatever they had written back. You see how, how it is, you know, you it's, it's so much, cost. it's so much harder. Uh, minimizing your cost because now. otherwise, so all of us, for example, applied to Caltech because Caltech had no application fee. They're like, all right, what's, what's, what have we got to lose? <laughs> nothing to lose. So we all applied to Caltech and I also applied to the University of Chicago and I got in there. So I was very happy the day I got into that university. It was very highly ranked and I knew nothing about Chicago and I knew nothing about uh, Illinois and I knew nothing about winters uh, in Chicago or any of that. But my father did because he had served in Le Ladakh. So he was like, all right, you're going to need these shoes because otherwise you're going to lose a toe out there. Uh, thanks to his and all of his friends' guidance, I actually showed up in Chicago pretty well equipped with winter stuff. 
And so, yeah, so I landed up in Chicago fall of 1996. So I joined David Lin's group in the Department of Chemistry in, in, uh, in Chicago. And he's one of the nicest people I know. He is, um, his group was a very happy group. Um, not a very big group by Cal standards, but by Chicago standard, a reasonably sized group, like 10, 15 people, a couple of people uh, ahead of me um, and, and so on. Uh, maybe three or four projects. Uh, nice thing about his group was that he did have kind of a very diverse portfolio of projects. Yeah, so the nice thing about his group was that group meetings would be very interesting. Not everybody was doing exactly the same thing. He also kind of focused mostly on just having graduate students. So it was just graduate students. So everybody was kind of this, you know, maybe just a few years ahead or and it wasn't like a very broad age group. It was mostly in, in, that, in that group. And there was a, a lot of sort of like diversity in all the literature that people were reading. So the discussions in group meeting were very interesting. And very early on, I learned the value of both paying attention, but keeping it informal. So the fact that when you were there, you were present and you paid attention and you gave it as best of your brain as you could, but at the same time, not spending too much time fussing about what you're going to present in group meetings and things like that. You know, that nice balance was there. But you were both present, but kind of also very relaxed. Uh, if you wanted to just give a chalk talk, nobody was going to give you a hard time. Yeah, so it sounds like it was a really, um, like you said, it was a really balanced environment. But grad school in general can be a stressful time for anyone who's in grad school, despite having a balanced lab or one that's really relaxed. Um, right. So can you recall um, any experience or moment in grad school where it was especially stressful? Yeah, so I, I um, two or three years into my grad school, uh, one of my friends who was a doctor at one of, the, one of the hospitals up in North Chicago, she bought a car. And so we were in her brand new car, she was a brand new driver, and we got into a really bad car accident. And I was very badly injured except I didn't know it at that time. So uh, I ended up having a very extended set of visits with the doctors for a year afterward. You know, you don't have a control for your life, so you don't know how to compare it with a different life when this did not happen. But it, it, just, it was just really, I was just, I, I just had a lot of extra stuff suddenly, you know, like it wasn't just like, oh, get up in the morning, show up in the lab, take your classes, you know, look, there is that brilliant professor teaching brilliant retrobiosynthesis that I'm not going to get a good grade in because he's way too strict or whatever. Not, none of the normal, those are the normal stresses. Suddenly it was like, I was in this, most of the time I just didn't think about it, but there were these, I remember maybe a few weeks after that accident, it's kind of like fall had just begun. And I remember walking from my little studio apartment where I lived alone to uh, the lab and fall in Chicago is just so beautiful. It's just so spectacularly beautiful. And Hyde Park is so beautiful. 
the buildings are these old beautiful buildings and i was just I remember being so overwhelmed. I collected so many leaves on the way to work thinking, <laughs> um, you know, what if I lost my eyesight? Because that's what the accident had done. It had created like a handful of ruptures in my retina from the impact of the car seat hitting my face because I'm short. And so the, the, the airbag didn't hit my chest, it hit my face. So I had like a whiplash from that and I had like ripped retina and it all got figured out, everything. But that evening, I remember I was just very overcome with like emotion, like, you know, oh my God, life is so short and anything can happen anytime. And here I am squandering my days, doing the same bad experiment over and over again. I need to do something more. You know, those kind of genuinely those kind of feelings, you know, that kind of like blindside you because you're suddenly you're like, everything I'm doing is wrong. I need to be doing something else. Like right now, anything could have happened. And I would have like, what did I, what I haven't thought about anything. I, you know, the, the, the realization that despite all your trials and tribulations, you've had it pretty good so far and things have kind of figured out and they've always been friends and family to help you and and all that for a moment that gets shaken and you really question all your decisions and don't worry it didn't last very long Uh, (laughs) but at a flea market some months before I had bought a piece of unfinished pottery it was this little milk jug just because the shape was kind of cool and walking up and down from my grocery store to my house I'd seen a new store open up it was one of those stores where you know kids go and they paint pottery and they dip and glaze it and they give it back (laughs) and so on so I had gone in there once but they were so expensive you had to buy Mm -hmm. them and I was like $15 and then studio time was another $15 and then dipping and glazing was another $15 who has the money to buy a $45 mug, right? Yeah, and especially one that's homemade. Uh, especially when it's homemade <laughs> and you're a grad student and you're, you know, your choices are instant noodles and beans. Uh, <laughs> and you've just been you know, in a car accident. So I went into the store and I asked the owner if she would let me paint my own pottery. I still had scars from my car accident or whatever. So I don't know, maybe she just looked at me and she was like, all right, maybe someone needs to give this one a break or or something. But what she asked me to do is as long, uh, so she said, yeah, sure. I painted something and then I came back a a week later and it was up on display on her storefront. And she said, oh, I'm glad to see you. And your piece came out really well and it looks beautiful. I was like, thank you. She was like, so what she proposed was apparently people weren't coming into her store. You know, it's a pretty fancy store for South Chicago. So um, what she wanted was somebody to sit at the window and just make stuff. So would I be willing to do that? And for every couple of pieces that she, I made for her, she would let me make one for myself. And I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty sweet. That's a sweet deal. Yeah. I know, right? So everybody in my family got like... <laughs> dish or a bowl or a, or a jar <laughs> or something. And I still have a, a, a couple from that time uh, that made it. So then one day I have this message on my phone and it's from somebody I don't recognize. Uh, but basically it's just of the messages that they saw some of my pieces. They liked the ethnic touch around it. 
And this lady was uh, an American-born Pakistani lady who's a lawyer, and she was about to have a baby, and would I make a mural for her baby in her baby's room? So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? So they had a very elaborate uh, notion of what they wanted, and they wanted me to sketch out what I would want to do. But I had no art supplies, right? Right. So when I was a kid, my, my dad used to paint and my mom used to paint. And so my dad had taught me and for many years growing up at home, there was always art supplies at home and we would draw and, and paint at home. But for some reason, I kind of abandoned it in college and, and university. I just hadn't done it. you were studying so hard. I, I, I just forgotten. I just <laughs> forgotten that I... I did this when I was younger. I just completely forgotten it, that I did this. And in my mind, my dad was the artist because he somehow continued. He still paints and, and very well. So because I had to make this prototype, now I had to figure out where there is a, a store with some art supplies. So when I went to that art store, you know, it's like, you know, you'd have this accident and then, you know, you're having these sort of like questioning thoughts in your mind about choices you've made and this niggling feeling of not doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. So I guess I thought, you know, I couldn't really afford much of the other stuff. So I bought some watercolors and some decent paper, a couple of brushes, a number four and number six. And I made some whatever illustration that this lady wanted me to make. Uh, but what it did is that it gave me an opportunity to have like paint supplies at home. So I was dating this fellow in, in Cal at the time. So all my money would go into visiting him went on to marry him and everything. But I had these very nice photographs that I'd taken in Point Reyes. And so I wanted to paint that. It's like this lovely purple sunset, weird purple sunset that you only see in some places. And so those were some of my first, you know, like dabbling with watercolor. Watercolor is, a, I would say, is a medium consistent with a researcher because you have to plan first and paint later because you have to think backwards. Anything that needs to be light needs to be kept blank. You kind of work backwards into the composition. And you have to be very careful about how you think about preserving the white space because that's what gives the light and the transparency. I realized very quickly that this is a very difficult medium. People stick children with watercolors and so on, but in fact, watercolor is a very difficult medium. But it was, it was fun, it was interesting. So I started painting and for many years, I just kind of did it at home. Nobody even knew that I painted. I mean, how did you balance doing all this extracurricular painting and then also finishing your PhD? Right. How did those complement each other? I had no social life. All I did was research and I came back home. I didn't have a TV or anything. I would just, you know, eat Nutella, paint, go to lab, work <laughs> on projects, run the same darn gel again and again and again. <laughs> like an insane person. And it was life as a single person who isn't who is in a relationship, but a long distance one, can have the strange sense of no boundaries. You know, you're not going out in social activities that much because mm -hmm. no 
your own mind, you know, your, you know, your evenings are just your evening. So I have to admit many weeks, I just kind of slept in the lab because there was some experiment going on that I wanted to take. I mean, there was no thought in my head that I shouldn't start this experiment right now, because if I want to take measurements for the next 10 hours, that puts me at 4 a.m. You know, I'm just going to crash on the couch, you know, in the lunchroom, and I'm just going to make measurements. Because oh, you were that person. You were that person. Like somebody said, waiting for me, at, you know, anywhere. I just lived by myself in my little studio apartment. So when I worked, when I drew, when I ate, when I bathed, were literally some free form thing. For me, there was no boundary. And that is not probably very healthy, but that's how it was for for me and I wouldn't have it any other way those were those four years were just the most liberating years of my life I was literally not accountable to anyone else except myself you called your parents once every two weeks and you told them you were okay <laughs> and you know you visited your friends every six months and you had a great time with them but the rest of the time was just all yours there's no one to really tell you to do something or, or not do something. And I was just, I didn't even know at that time how happy I was or how, how content it is to have this because you're not responsible for raising your own funds. You, somebody else was thinking about all of those other stuff. You just planned your experiments. You thought about your, controls and you did those experiments maybe they worked maybe they didn't and my advisor was very supportive he was mostly interested is my interest still up am I still having fun did I learn something new and that's it that was it everything else followed from there and he was always just so super excited about every little new thing that I would eke out of any experiment and yeah papers got written and work got done very difficult experiments were conducted and a lot of running back and forth between departments in the middle of winter holding ice buckets and walking in four feet deep snow happened all of that happened peeing in and out of cups before and after radioactive experiments all of that but it was just uh, amazing I mean uh, I guess because nobody put any pressure on me to do it one way or the other. I was kind of allowed to do things my way. And I have met people who would not have liked that structure. They, they would want more guidance or more instruction. Luckily for me, I think it was a good, good match, really good match. It sounds like it. I also discovered Martin Scorsese and David Lynch and Terry Gilliam all during this time and watched <laughs> endless movies at the University of Chicago Doc Films uh, would show these movies like uh, like Wednesdays would be Terry Gilliam and Thursdays would be like David Lynch and something like that like that and then on on weekends they would play blockbusters and you have to pay for that so I wouldn't do that <laughs> uh, but on the weekends it was just the movie club that was running it so I would set up my gel and then I would go and uh, buy a bar of chocolate and I would mm -hmm. go and watch a movie I would come back my gel would be done um, and that, I, I, I can't tell you, Megan, it was just, it was, it was so charmed. I, I, I would, it's not sustainable. No. Maybe because you grow up and, and things change and you want other things, but I did everything and I wouldn't have it any other way. I did everything, whatever I wanted to, I did it. Like you said, it, it was charmed, you know, to have this lifestyle in grad school. 
And I think part of that, it sounds like, is really from, you know, having this balance between your hobby and your work and, you know, just feeling like you had a lot of freedom. Um, so since graduating, have you been able to implement that life balance into your current life? And basically what I'm asking is, are you actively participating in that hobby and does it still bring you that same kind of joy? Yeah, it comes and goes. There are periods where I'm more able to and there are periods where I'm not uh, because, you know, like I said, it's not sustainable. You have a lot more responsibilities now, both at home and at work. You're responsible for other people. There's certainly a lot more pressure to get things done in a certain amount of time, in a certain amount of way. There is a lot of consequence associated with successes and failures. So it can't be free form like that anymore. And so that adds a lot of of constraints. Uh, and with those constraints come stresses that because science is a creative enterprise and putting deadlines on it and having to hustle at times can feel very counterintuitive. So the hobby part, when I can do it, it helps a lot. It helps a lot if I can find that time. So as a, there's sort of one of those, you know, cute things from the Dalai Lama that, you know, you should meditate for an hour every day, except when you're really, really, really busy, then you should meditate for two hours. <laughs> um, and that, that is sort of exactly it. Uh, the, the irony is that, is that when you most need it, you know, this break, the need to step back is when you least do it because you're just so pressured to just keep moving forward that the most stressful periods are when you're not being able to take that step back and do something else, whatever that other thing is for me, it's drawing. So I moved away from painting altogether and I just draw now. The days that I draw, there is sort of like, it's like you gave one half of your brain like a rest for for a little bit of time so it's uh, it's very important it's very very important and I, I know you meant to ask if my hobby ever got in the way of work i wish uh no no it's never uh, at the end of the day most of us you know are just too hardwired to prioritize uh, work Mm -hmm. uh, and even within work, we prioritize the thing that others want us to do rather than the thing that we want to do. And that's not entirely unreasonable because it's all connected. You're not like some independent spirit or something. But I wish I, wish I, I was better at a daily reminder to say I've done enough of one type of work for the day, I need to do that other type to uh, seek that balance. Because days become weak, week becomes months sometimes, and you haven't sought that balance. And then you, then the quality of your work starts suffering, and then you start questioning whether what you're doing is is what you want to do or not. It, it's not. It's not healthy. Thanks so much for listening to Secret Life of a Graduate Student. Next week, we start our series on imposter syndrome in science. We hope you tune in for it. If you like the show, please tell your friends and give us a thumbs up on your listening platform. Till next week, thanks!